I've given a talk now for nearly 20 years now and again called uh, Myth and Science in Cycling. Okay. And a lot of the things that I'm going to say today will be upsetting uh, to <laughs> some of your listeners. And what I want to make sure they understand is I am not just a geek in a lab coat. Um, you know, I raced, I was a category one track rider, uh, master's national sprint champion, uh, cat two road rider with, with wins. Um, uh, I am one of you. Huh. Uh, I'm a lifetime. I, I commute year round in Utah winter. Um, so I am a cyclist. Uh, and now I do research that has, you know, relevancy to cycling and the two don't always agree. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us today is uh, an individual that if you're a bike nerd, you almost certainly have heard his name either in the research you've read or in the podcast you've listened to. And uh, this is a trivial statement, but obviously after listening to this one, you'll have heard his name. And that is uh, University of Utah Associate Professor Dr. Jim Martin. So Jim's research came across uh, my desk uh, oh, many years ago, maybe five or six, when I was um, trying to goof around with uh, with crank lengths in triathlon bike fits. And uh, I can't remember who turned me on to, to Jim's research, but the suggestion was that, you know, there's a lot of benefit to in, in positioning a rider uh, on a triathlon or a time trial bike. Uh, by using shorter cranks, and of course, the question was whether or not there's there's much of an effect in uh, in performance in using these cranks. So I came across uh, some of Jim's work, and uh, I've been a pretty uh, pretty strong advocate of uh, short crank arms for that t aggressive TT position. Um, and then more, more recently, I've heard Jim speak on a couple of podcasts that I listened to, and uh, then decided to invite him to share his uh, experience and knowledge with uh, with our, with you, our listeners. So, Jim, uh, thank you very much for taking the time and coming on the show. And uh, why don't we start with a little bit of an introduction, both your um, academic life and as well as your interest in cycling and sport. Sounds good. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I guess I could I could start with sport. Um, so so my original training was in uh, engineering. And uh, when I was working as a professional engineer, I, I uh, was racing bikes. Mm -hmm. um, I eventually uh, was a category one uh, track rider and a category two road rider. Nice. I've, I have wins in both areas, um, state, Texas state champion uh, in match sprint and um, uh, masters national champion. Uh, so, so that's, that's uh, going to be important as I go forward with some of the stuff we talk about because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I am one of you. I am a cyclist. I am a lifetime cyclist. I got a 10 speed at age 13. Uh, I, I can commute year round in Utah winter with studded tires. Uh, so I, I am not just a lab coated geek, uh, who's, who doesn't actually know cycling. Uh, <laughs> and I think that that might be important to keep in mind. So, so I, when I, um, when I got done with my cycle, uh, bike racing, um, uh, I decided to go back to grad school 
And I actually started in engineering, but uh, eventually switched over to the exercise science program at University of Texas. Okay. Uh, and I've studied a range of topics, you know, from growth and development and aging to now stroke rehab, uh, uh, really basic aspects of neuromuscular function, but always using a cycling model. Uh, and that's important. We, we don't study cycling uh, sometimes, maybe once in a while, <laughs> but for the most part, we're studying neuromuscular function, integrated neuromuscular function. We do it with humans on, on bikes, uh, stationary bikes. We, we also do it, uh, with animal preparations, with isolated muscles. Uh, so, so, but we are interested in, we, my lab is the neuromuscular function lab. Uh, it is not a spin class, which you might think <laughs> when you walk in and you see all the ergs. Yeah. Um, so, so what is it uh, about the bicycle or about testing people on a bicycle that that is so conducive to doing the the research that you're doing? Is there something specific to the modality? Yeah. So when you cycle, several things happen. Uh, first of all, you have to excite the muscle, uh, so the muscle turns on. It doesn't turn on instantaneously. It takes a while for the muscle uh, for for the signal to turn the muscle on for it to generate tension, mm -hmm. and then then once the muscle is on and you're say pushing down on the crank or on the pedal. Uh, you know, the, uh, the muscle is changing shortening velocity. Uh, you know, it, at the, at the top, the, the leg extensors are not shortening very fast. And then as you, you know, reach three o'clock, they're shortening very fast. And then mm -hmm. as you go down to the bottom, they, sh they shorten slower. So you've got a, what we would call a force velocity effect of muscle. Um, and then you, you also have to turn the muscle off. And muscles turn off rather slowly compared to how fast they turn on. Hmm. So you actually have to turn the muscle off pretty far before uh, you reach the bottom of the pedal stroke, at least for the extensors. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, they'll, they'll still be activated uh, and you'll have to fight against them uh, with the other leg as, as that leg uh, comes up, if I'm making sense. So you, so you, have, you have activation. Uh, Force velocity effects. You also have force length effect because the muscles are changing length. Mm -hmm. Then you have deactivation, uh, which takes a lot of time and almost always ends up with some uh, eccentric muscle force or, or counterproductive muscle force being produced. If you if you try to completely eliminate the counterproductive force, you can't produce hardly any active force or, um, or productive force. So it, it it's all an optimization problem. Uh, which you don't have to think about. Uh, you're actually doing it using spinal cord level motor programs that have been developed over millions of years, uh, starting with with very very distant ancestors. Um, so that that's that's how's that for why we <laughs> use cycling. So I imagine this allows you to uh, to do research into muscle coordination and, and muscle function then because of uh, and I, I I wonder too if if the fact that it's kind of a closed exercise that it that probably eliminates some of the maybe and this is just me guessing out here but eliminate some of the like the the um, the elastic potential energy storage of let's say you would have in running with which is what makes like studying running so much more complicated i know we've had folks studying running on on the show and they're like yeah it's really hard to it's really hard to really pinpoint exactly what's happening at all the times or or to model it because it's so much more complicated than you know uh, pedaling circles with your feet um 
Yeah, so so I might take exception to that. Uh, I, I would say <laughs> cycling is is equally complex. We we certainly have elastic energy storage and return, uh, not not as much as running, uh, but yeah, our our when we do mathematical modeling, it's 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 the same complete you know muscle tendon joint model that anyone else would use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but having said that, um, when, in in a cycling model, you can either control or measure uh, every variable of interest. So, so that makes it really convenient uh, to, you, you can isolate things that you want to study. And I would assume too, looking at the, the muscle activation that you mentioned, this is probably something that fundamentally limits our speed with a lot of exercises where uh, cadence, everyone notices when they go to a high enough cadence that it becomes difficult. And likewise with sprinting, if running sprinting, um, you can only turn over your legs so fast and and you just kind of lose control. So to me, that seems like one of the limitations that we're fighting against in a lot of these cases. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's, it's um, we, we just published a paper maybe, maybe a year and a half ago on, we, we, we so deactivation, it t- turns out to be really important, how, how fast your muscle can turn off. And what's interesting is that when you do, so on the track side, uh, you know, match sprinter type guys, uh, girls. Um, when you do heavy, slow, heavy strength training, uh, you get stronger, which you want, uh, but your your activation and deactivation actually get slower, which you don't want. Hmm. Uh, and so, so you're always looking at a trade off of, you know, trying to get the muscle stronger but not make it slower. Uh, and so, so we, we published some, we, we used some, uh, data from the eighties no, because nobody measures deactivation rate. Like there are only two exercise training studies that I could find in the entire literature, uh, where in this case, Hakkinen, uh, from Finland had measured, um, deactivation rates and no, no one looks at it. Um, you, you see a lot of the strength and conditioning studies talk about, um, uh, rate of force development, RFD, mm-hmm. and they like that. It turns out that rate of force development is already so fast, it doesn't really matter if you improve it. Uh, but deactivation uh, is a big problem. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder too if, like, if if more you know, compound or cyclical movements like cycling help you train that because in order to become, you know, as as you say, a better cyclist, would uh, to have to have less eccentric eccentric negative work, if you like, um, then then you, yeah. Well, where am I going with this? <laughs> through training, through training, through training your cycling, like that's that's going to improve, I imagine. Yeah, we we don't know that for sure. Okay. Uh, but but it, it's it's reasonable. Um. If you look across species, uh, what you find is that the 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 normal operating frequency of a muscle uh, is exactly linearly related to the the percentage of the muscle that's taken up by uh, the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is the the uh, uh, which which stores calcium and releases it. So that to start muscle contraction and then and then takes it back up to cause muscle relaxation. Hmm. So so if you go across species from humans on one end, uh, the the upper end is rattlesnake tail shaker muscle. Uh, so they 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 shake their rattle at 140 hertz, not 140 Holy RPM. Holy moly! Yeah, 140 wow. cycles per second. 
uh, and they have huge sarcoplasmic reticulum volume. Uh, hummingbird flight muscle, it, it also has really large uh, sarcoplasmic reticulum. So, so the, the, the plasticity is there in you know, muscle DNA. And the question is, can you cause it to change? There's, there's one paper by a guy named Orton Blad who shows upregulation uh, with training, but it, it's, it's hard to get at. That is fascinating. Um, okay, well, with uh, with that background in our minds, uh, let's talk to the uh, let's talk about the subject that I that initially piqued my interest, and that is crank length. And this is very topical for me because I'm always you know dorking around with different uh, with different orientations. I just uh, I just picked up a set of uh, 155 millimeter cranks from uh, from my friend Pierre, uh, and uh, this is coming off of 165. And then for listeners, just so that you have some context, I am. Uh, you know, if I, if I was to write a dating profile, I would tell people I'm six feet tall, but really I'm kind of like five <laughs> eleven and a half <laughs> with very short cranks. I don't know if that, that's, uh, that would be a very a kind of esoteric, not personal, but just a little bit of, uh, maybe unnecessary information, but who knows? Maybe if it's, if, maybe if it's that, uh, that triathlon dating, uh, app that, uh, Angela Nath is developing. Uh, but now we're getting off topic anyway. So I'm, a, I'm, you know, above average, not certainly not very tall, but above average height, human with long legs, a long inseam, and I'm riding a very short crank and I love it. And so, um, one of the reasons I feel safe in doing that, as I mentioned in the introduction was having read, uh, Jim's research on the topic, but, uh, now we, <laughs> now we have the man himself to talk about it. How did, uh, how did it come about? How did you, why did you decide to look at different crank lengths and, uh, what, what did the research show? And then the specific interest for us, um, most of the listeners here are endurance athletes, especially like long course folks. So the kind of the, the efficiency of, of different crank arms, different crank arm lengths, uh, is definitely a, a considerable factor for us. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, where do you start here? So when, when I was in grad school, after I quit racing, uh, went to grad school, I was coaching, uh, coaching team EDS and, uh, I had two match sprinters I was coaching, Nick Chenoweth, who was 6'5", okay. uh, with fairly long legs, and uh, Trey Gannon uh, with an inseam of 30 inches. Hmm. Uh, so, and of course, because, because Trey was short-legged, he rode short cranks, 165. Yeah. And because Nick was long-legged, he rode long cranks, 167.5. <laughs> that was the wisdom and, at the time, right? Absolutely. And it, it bothered me that that probably wasn't optimal, but I, but nobody knew and I didn't know. And I wanted to study it, but you can't, you know, you can't just do that. It's, it's, um, you can't say I'm interested in, in cycling power. You have to come up with another, uh, angle. And so my angle was that, that my PhD ended up being in growth development and aging hmm. and, a lot of the literature at the time showed that uh, kids were less powerful than adults, uh, even when you take into account uh, body mass. Okay. And so I thought, well, maybe that's because the kids' cranks are too long for them. Hmm. Uh, they're, 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 they're being hampered by the bike setup. And so I, just, I use that to justify one of the studies in my dissertation, which is probably the one you saw. Oh, no, you would have seen a different one. Anyway, the, the first one was on maximal power. Yes, uh, there, was, there was the one on maximal power. And then there was another one I think I read that was more on efficiency. 
if I remember correctly. Yeah, that one's that's your that that second one is John McDaniel's thesis from South yes. Carolina. Yep. So, um, but we we started out with um, looking at maximal power, and um, uh, the um, I, I didn't want to try to study it in kids initially. I did later. I, I was concerned. I, I wanted cyclists who I thought would be very reliable. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I brought in 16 trained cyclists and um, we tested uh, 125, 140, 170, 195, 220. Hmm. Um, and I actually had 245s. Uh, I was, I was going to go whatever's the next 25 down, I, I guess 95 and 240. I had those holes drilled. And um, when I did the, the 240, I actually gave myself whiplash because I hit myself in the chest so hard with my thigh. <laughs> Especially so, if you're doing so max I, power. Yeah, like, there's a lot of force yeah. production there. So, so we, we joke there, but that's actually one of the big implementation or the um, the impacts of having the shorter crank length is you can get closer and not hit yourself in the chin or the knees. Yeah, or, the, yes, uh, right. <laughs> or your that's or right. your COVID or your COVID nineteen belly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so so we um, the results of that, and, and keep in mind again, I'm a cyclist. I was coaching national champion cyclists, national team members. Mm-hmm. I was looking to optimize, and what I what I found was uh, that maximal power uh, between 145 and 195 millimeters didn't change. Hmm. Uh, just this, it, it was remarkable, and even the the extremes, the the uh, uh, 120 and 220, those were, you know, statistically significantly less powerful, but it was only about 4%. Okay. Uh, which I, I don't think any cyclist would believe or would have believed and may, may not believe now. I, it's hard to know. Um, but yeah, it was. And, and, and by the way, um, you said earlier something about, uh, you know, CrossFit games and the mental game and y- your perception. So I have a funny anecdote that comes out of that study that, that, um, so these guys are cyclists. They're, they're on whatever, 172 fives for the last 10 years. And, and it's at university of Texas where you can't park, but parking is, is insane. Okay. So they rode their bike to the lab. They come up to the eighth floor, they do my testing and, and, and they would make fun of the cranks, right? If they were on short ones, almost universally, universally, they would, uh, sing the circus bear song (laughs) and on on the long cranks, they would make various sounds and, and that's all fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, enjoying uh, working with these guys and then, you know, okay, thanks for the testing. And they'd leave and they'd ride home. And, and then next time they came in in one way or another, every single subject told me, just in in their own words, anecdotally, that when they got back on their own road bike, it felt weird. <laughs> yep. So so twenty minutes in a lab with a funny crank length changed their re- reset their normal, mm. so, such that the the bike they'd been on for ten years felt odd. So from my own personal standpoint, uh, I find it very and I fully agree, and I find it very interesting how quickly your body can adapt to something like that. So on and off over the past several years, I've been using non-round chain rings, just playing around. And I know there's a lot of debate about the efficiency, but uh, personally, I like them for feel. And that's, who knows if they're more efficient. But 
regardless, you get very attuned to using these cranks. And then going back to round chambering, it feels like it's slipping. Mm-hmm. Um, and then likewise, when you go back to the non-round, but within five minutes, you're, you feel normal. And it feels like you've always ridden that style. So it's just unbelievable how quickly your body adapts. Yeah, I agree completely. That was actually a question that I had for Jim for for later on in the show. So let's uh, let's shelve the non round <laughs> rings. No, no, you're cool. Um, it's oh. it's a little prelude, <laughs> but we we will get back to that one, listeners, because I think it's a it's a fun topic to discuss. So um, do you have any any you know either evidence or or even educated guesses as to why is it that that you know maximal power didn't change very much across that really large uh, difference in crank length? Yeah. So, so even though you, it is a large change, but, but for your, for within the context of, um, you know, muscle force length, uh, and force velocity, it turns out that it, it, it's not that big a change. Muscle's very adaptable. And, and there's, so there's, there's really, I guess, really three things that, that go on. So with cadence, as cadence changes, as we talked about earlier, you have you have activation deactivation going on, mm-hmm. and then you also have muscle shortening velocity, uh, which is dependent on the cadence and on the crank length. Right. Uh, and then, in addition to that, uh, in 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 all of my experiments, what we do is is raise the saddle when you go to shorter crank lengths, so that mm-hmm. the maximum extension is always the same. Mm-hmm. And and what that means is that if you're on a shorter crank. At every other point in the cycle, besides maximum extension, your leg is more extended than it was at a longer length. Okay. And what's interesting about that, and and you know, I could I could go full geek here and t- start talking <laughs> about biomechanical gear ratio, which will mean nothing to you. But everyone that's listening to you knows that if you do a leg press or a back squat, uh, you can do more weight if you don't go deep. Hmm. Right. If you do a partial squat, you, you you get to look like Superman. If you do a deep <laughs> squat, it's, it, it gets really heavy. Yes. And that's exactly the same thing that happens with crank length, uh, a smaller scale oh, on crank length. But because your leg is more extended, it's stronger. Uh, as you go to longer cranks, it's it is, uh, you know, a, a much different biomechanical gear ratio. It's a deeper squat and you can do less weight. But you do have the longer crank. Uh, yeah, so your leverage, is, the, your leverage yeah, changes. It balances out. The, right, right. And the, the leverage is what everyone fixates on. But what, what you have to keep in mind is, yes, you have more leverage, but because the crank is longer for any given pedaling rate, you know, 90 RPM, it's moving faster. Yeah. And because it's moving faster, you have higher muscle shortening velocity, which means you can produce less force. Mm, that's a good point. So it... All and and actually, I have I, I should have looked it up. I forgot about this. But when when I was going to give this talk at um, at a conference in Germany, um, fitters conference, I knew that there were people who argue this. Well, it's the leverage, and and I, I got I actually got on slowtwitch.com and I made a post. I said, "You guys know that the literature is out there, but there are people who don't believe it." If you're one of these people who doesn't believe it, tell tell me why, so I can I can figure out a way to address that. Mm-hmm. And and to his credit, one guy and I, I sorry I don't remember his username. Uh, he said, "Okay, I'll I'll have a go." You know, I learned in whatever Cub Scouts 
you know, that a longer <laughs> lever gives you more torque. And why isn't that true? Oh, well, it is true, but it, it, it's only part of the, of the story. Mm -hmm. For my own personal rationalization, um, I forget the, the method and what it's called exactly, but I like taking things to extremes. So, uh, and that often helps justify some kind of concept uh, and help basically your brain work through some complex, uh, you know, calculations or something like that. But if you were to take a crank that is two feet long and you think of having, having that contraction, it, it does start to make sense to your your brain just uh, without having to do any any justification or rationalization you think okay if it were that long and I was pushing and pulling over that distance yes I'd have more leverage but I couldn't push it very fast um, but then at some point going to the other extreme where if you have a 10 millimeter crank length and apologies for switching millimeters and feet there but uh, if you do a 10 <laughs> millimeter crank length <laughs> poor um, engineering practice Andrew come on stick to your units Maybe we can edit that out in post. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Uh, but uh, at the other extreme, you will suffer likewise. It's it's there's going to be some range where, like you said, you're kind of balancing the the muscle force activation and the crank length, and they they offset each other. Yeah. And then it will probably dip down on either either end of the spectrum. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. So 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 we actually have done some of that, uh, and earlier when we were talking about you know, muscle activation and deactivation, and can you train that? Uh, so some of the groups I've worked with have have done what they call clown bike training, uh, which is... Uh, <laughs> is it as fun as it sounds? Uh, no, not in this case. They just, they called it clown bike because because if you call cycling on 110 millimeter cranks uh, cycling, they they don't take it seriously. If you call it, if you call it neuromuscular training on the stupid clown bike, then, then it's okay. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, so I, yeah. Um, a anyway, so, so in there. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the Australians have done this, the British have done this, uh, you know, hitting pedaling rates of, of in the, the three, three twenty three thirty range. Wow. Um, and so, so, um, so in my lab, I got to, I got really interested in this and I, I thought, well, I couldn't convince them to go. I wanted them to go a hundred millimeters. They wouldn't go less than one ten. I don't know why, <laughs> so, psych reasons. And so I, I got uh, using myself. I got in the lab and I, um, I think I went down to forty five millimeters, <laughs> and y y it actually doesn't help. It, it, it. In fact, it hurts. But to to your point, uh, it, it you just can't coordinate it. Hmm. So so I think for me, uh, the the highest I could get was i think i i hold the lab record at, at 328 rpm and, and that was with 90 millimeter cranks <laughs> wow that would be a blur <laughs> yeah. yeah i've got no, a video of it somewhere yeah, you got it you have to send that to us we'll share it we'll share it in our show notes that sounds fun um so then let's let's go a little bit more practical let's dig into the practical applications of this um and this is a, a question i put to you in in our email exchange um but in use cases right so most of the folks listening to the show are either triathletes or, or road cyclists or um maybe some mountain bikers uh in those different applications, and I know it's a really complex question because there's a lot of it depends in that question in the in the answer to this. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you were just strictly looking at the cranks, uh, what what would be your recommendation for those various disciplines? Uh, it depends on height and leg length and goals and 
Um, okay, so let me narrow, I, let's start with TT yeah. and let's say your your goal is to let's say you're not doing a super long race and your goal is ultimate aerodynamics. Let's say you're doing a 40k time oh. trial or something like that, um, and, or like a short triathlon, and you just you you want to be as slippery as possible. Oh boy. Okay. So then you want horizontal torso, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, if you want horizontal torso and you have to have a UCI legal position. Okay. So that's not triathlon. This is road time trial. Okay. Uh, then, then you have to have the seat, you know, fairly far back compared mm-hmm. to a triathlete lead who can put it way, way forward. Uh, and so you have to, I'll give you, use myself as an example. Uh, I set up a time trial bike, um, and with, with, you know, with horizontal torso and in order for, and I'm, I'm five foot eight, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> That's I what your, your dating profile would say point. too. <laughs> it, but but it, 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 in my case, it actually is accurate. Uh, <laughs> five, eight and like one sixteenth, right? I measure things for a living. This is what I do. Fair point. Uh, at, w- at what time, and, in, at um, what time in the, in the day though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. First thing in the morning when everything's left. Um, so, um, Anyway, and, and 156, 158, depending. Uh, and in order for me to get a horizontal torso and be able to pedal uh, comfortably, I had to go to 145s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm moderate height, uh, reasonable body composition. You know, I don't have a panis hanging down. Uh, uh, so, and what that says to me, uh, and I'm not a bike fitter, but if, if I'm average height, maybe a little under now, I think the generations have gotten taller. Uh, almost everybody is on cranks that are too long. Hmm. Uh, you know, m- more, more than half of people are on cranks that are too long. Uh, certainly, I, you know, when, when I give this talk, I've got a, 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 some, some images that I snatched off the web of various uh, women match sprinters. Okay. And, you know, uh, or, or everybody will, even the, the triathletes and, and uh, road cyclists will have seen pictures of the German guy, Robert Forsterman, yes, the guy with the gigantic yes, legs. Quadzilla. So he, yeah, so he, he is a world champion, but, but not consistently and not in the individual events. Um, and the reason is because he, this is his torso shape as he goes through the air. He's a parachute. Mm-hmm. And he's a parachute because his cranks are way too long for his his legs and and torso. Because mm-hmm. he's not a um, tall guy. He's got you know he's he's pretty. He was obviously quite muscular and stocky, but he's I I don't remember his height, but he's definitely not a tall dude. Yeah, I, I'm thinking five 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 six mm-hmm. That's uh, how, with gigantic right. thighs, and so he he just cannot get arrow. So it doesn't hurt him too much in the team sprint start where he's standing most of it, uh, but. Yeah, in match sprinting, he's he's uh, what an ordinary world class cyclist. Uh, whereas <laughs> yeah. I, I I think if he were on one thirty fives, he would be the unbeatable world champion. Huh. But I think there's there's probably some some effect of wanting to compare yourself, where you know bigger is better is what uh, there's just this mindset that everyone defaults to. And I know through my work uh, with Four Eyes, there was very commonly athletes would go with shorter crank lengths and 165 is the the shortest that's reasonably commercially available uh especially from shimano but the majority of road cyclists would do 172.5s or 175s uh because they thought well i don't 
I'm not a triathlete. I don't need short cranks. And it was just this mentality, like, I need to go as long as I can because why would I go shorter? Yeah. Um, but there was no discussion about the efficiency. It's just this assumption that you have to go longer and bigger is better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's two, there's two things going on, actually. Uh, the first one is, um, is the aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. But then the other one is, um, you know, what's, what's referred to as the power arrow trade-off. And this notion that if you get too low, you know, if you get that, that acute hip angle, uh, that your power will be reduced. Okay. Uh, and, and there are studies there that I found uh, for the last talk I did on this, I think I found six studies on this topic. Uh, three of them showed no power, power arrow trade-off. Really? And the other three that did, I think the highest power arrow trade-off was uh, 3%. 3% really? loss of power. That really, yeah, I it, find that really surprising. Like, because about me, anecdotally, like if when I switch from my road bike to my TT bike and I don't have an extreme hip angle, but it's, you know, it's pretty tight. My, my trade-off is a lot more than 3%. But how often do you yeah. tra- train in that position? That would be my question. Like if you yeah, so this, train and adapt to it, then that difference possibly it, decreases. It's, it's very like on an individual basis, it's very hard to test because like you would do, you know, I would generally do, I would test as soon as I start riding TT for like a tri build, just so I get my accurate kind of training intensities and there the drop was you know substantial but as i get fitter on that in that position you're absolutely right you i think i do believe that you can train you can train the position to be a lot stronger then of course you know my numbers go up a little bit and then it would be interesting to compare at that point in the season but i've never it's i can you know it's obviously n equals one too but i can never really fairly compare the two because i usually skew very heavily one versus the other that's a good point andrew sure sure so so anyway it it, 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 it's not as big as people think, but it is real. And the question is, what, what's the mechanism there? And it, uh, the, my, my synthesis of the literature is, is that it simply is uh, blood flow restriction. Mm-hmm. That, that when you get those, about that. those hip angles, you, you, the blood flow is compromised a little bit, not a lot, right? A few percent. Um, and the way you get around that is by opening up the hip angle. And mm-hmm that's crank length that's shorter crank opens up the hip it's going to knock out the the power arrow trade-off and it's going to let you uh, get that low torso so earlier on you you made a comment about not maybe not being disappointed but being surprised by the results that the crank length didn't have a huge impact and i think a lot of people look at this and say oh that's not a useful result but i look at it and say the exact opposite where now that you know there is no impact, you can focus your optimization on something else. Like the the optimization in and of itself of the crank length may not be significant overall, but the impacts of a shorter crank can be huge in terms of the aerodynamic benefits. Yeah. So I think like that's probably one of the biggest uh, indirect impacts of the research. And I think it's a fantastic result. Yeah, good point. It simply becomes a fitting variable. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, from my perspective, again, I'm not a bike fitter. But I fit myself, so I guess I'm a bike fitter. <laughs> um, I, I would I would say that the, so a fitting session could go something like this. Okay, how what what torso angle are you comfortable with? You know, if you're doing a pursuit, then you probably want to be horizontal, or even mm-hmm. a forty k. Maybe you can do horizontal. If you're doing mm-hmm. an Ironman, you're not going to want to be horizontal. Because it's just too hard on your neck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Visibility suffers big time. Like there's, that's a, that's right. a huge question. 
Yeah, I get I sort of see double when when my head is is up and my eyes are way up in my head. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to do that for very long. So so decide on you know what torso angle do you want, mm-hmm. and then if it's horizontal or if it's you know thirty degrees, whatever it is, then um, start. Uh, uh, set, set that up, set up the seat and the handlebar relative to each other, and then start working crank lengths and find the longest crank that allows you to have that torso position and still pedal comfortably. And that it doesn't even have to be the longest, but, but you know, mm-hmm. you don't have no reason to go shorter than you need to. That was going to be my question. Like, is there any reason not to go short, you know, as short as you can commercially get? Because I, you know, again, this is purely anecdotal for me, but I, um, you know, I'm riding 155s now and I'm very comfortable in them. And they came from a gentleman who was, who switched to 150s. Now he's a little bit shorter than me, but, uh, and he's, he's loving the 150s and he does a ton of aero testing. And so he, you know, aerodynamically is pretty optimized. Um, so is there, is there any drawback? I mean, without getting ridiculous, you know, 110 millimeter like your lab kind of stuff is there any you know if you're if you're gonna buy a crank length and right now buying anything from shimano is kind of interesting but if you're gonna if you're gonna get something and you have the option to to do it um is there any drawback to going too short as a as a time trialist triathlete not that i know of um okay you know certainly not within the range down to 145 which is where we've evaluated efficiency Uh, Mm um and and even there um, you know, you could probably, we, we didn't go lower than that because we knew that, that 145 didn't affect muscular power. Uh, but submaximal, yeah, I, I bet you could go lower still with, with absolutely no consequences. And, and that, you know, it, it, that was for, you know, that cohort of cyclists, if you were smaller than that, then the whole thing would probably be scaled down too. Right. So as a follow-up on that question, how would this impact the self-selected cadence for, for riders? Um, so if they're going to a shorter crank, uh, you're, you're spinning at less distance, therefore doing less work for the same amount of force. This is, this is where it gets a little bit interesting, and sadly, I don't know the answer. Uh, Tom Korf at, at Brunel, when, when he was at Brunel, had a student who did this study. Mm-hmm. Um, the student never tried to get it published. And, and shortly after the study, uh, Tom left to, to do industry. Now he's at Frog Bicycles. Um, so, but he has data somewhere. Maybe he'll hear this and call me. Uh, <laughs> uh, th- with, with different crank lengths and uh, self-selected cadence. And if I remember from, from our you know, email thread years and years ago now, um, they were actually not selecting the same pedal speed. Interesting. So pedal speed determines efficiency. They were they were actually selecting something in between uh, pedal speed and um, this 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 thing that we called cyclic velocity, which is the, a combination of uh, pedal speed and and just cadence. So, so anyway, the point is they actually select a lower pedal speed. It's still a higher cadence, but, but a lower pedal speed with shorter cranks. Hmm. And so what that says is that in the self-selected case, the short crank might be even more uh, efficient. 
not not just no difference. It actually might be more efficient because it slows down pedal speed a little bit. Because cyclists choose to slow down pedal speed if that down. data holds up uh, mm-hmm. that, that Tom sure. discussed with me. I don't know for sure. So there's one more impact that I've been wondering about, and I don't believe it's ever been studied. So if anyone's got uh, the ability to do this, then I would love to see it pursued. But looking at the aerodynamics of different cadences, so if you've got uh, your legs moving forward at some multiple of your forward velocity, your drag goes up with the, the, the drag power goes up with the cube of speed. So the faster you're moving your legs forward on the top of the pedal stroke, the more drag you're providing. Um, so shorter cranks might actually be a benefit purely in aerodynamics too, because you're kind of, you're, you're closer to that mean velocity, uh, as opposed to pushing further with that cubic relationship where it has a bigger impact. So I don't believe it's been studied, but that would be really interesting to look into. Well, you're the one with the CFD models, Andrew. Why don't you (laughs) make it, make them dynamic. Come on. No, no problem there. Right. (laughs) Well, I, I will say that way, way, way back in uh, Project 96, which was uh, the USA Cycling Wind Tunnel and Aerodynamics Program, um, we actually did a, a, a comparison of, of pedaling. Uh, I don't remember what the cadence was or even if we controlled it, but, but pedaling versus static. And we, we evaluated at a range of different, uh, you know, fixed crank angles. Mm-hmm. And the uh, average of the fixed crank angles was exactly the same as the the pedaling. Okay. So I don't know. I I agree with your theory. Uh, And of course, when it's going back at the bottom, it'd be that, that less. So it may all cancel out. Uh, It, it, it shouldn't mathematically, but all I can tell you is that that simple result. It could be signal to noise, uh, in which case it may not be a significant yeah. change. So uh, the other interesting. interesting implication, and I'm going down a huge rabbit hole here, so please pull me out in a second. But uh, when your legs are more bent, um, you've got the inclined cylinder effect, where if you take uh, if you take a cylinder that's completely vertical, and the cross section of that would be a, a circle. But if you've got an inclined cylinder, it's now an elliptical cross section, which is a much lower drag coefficient. And I think we've talked about this in the show before, Michael, or at least in our own we've definitely yeah. We've definitely talked about this, yes. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're uh, giant so, aerodynamics nerds, Jim. Yeah. That's why that's why you're getting all these questions. Uh, so it's, it's something that uh, maybe having the longer crank length, it causes your legs to bend more, in which case that aerodynamic contribution, yes, it's moving a higher velocity forward, but uh, maybe the drag coefficient lower. So anyway, pull me out of this rabbit hole. Let's, let's All right, let's, let's, let's get back onto cadence, though, because this is the, the next topic of conversation that I had lined up for us. And uh, Jim, I know you mentioned that you were, you know, um, you may be not uh, an expert in some of these areas, but uh, cadence is always discussed in, in cycling circles, triathlon circles, and there's, there doesn't seem to be a ton of consensus on, on what's more efficient and what you should, what you should be training. And there's some, there's some interesting research on the, the, you know, the training effect of, of training in high cadence versus low cadence. We had Collie Moore, uh, from Empirical Cycling talking about how he likes to do VO2 max work at high cadence, uh, for, for, you know, reasons of, well, cardiac preload on his side. Um, and then there's some evidence that training sort of sub-threshold work at low cadences is, is quite good at, uh, at um, potentially reducing the glycolytic flux uh, in, in athletes, which has some positive impact on, uh, let's say, endurance racing, steady state endurance racing, sub, sub-threshold endurance racing. But uh, where do you land on, 
uh, on kind of what's the most what's the most efficient uh, efficient cadence. Um, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, so so efficient cadence is is actually a lot lower than anybody wants to pedal uh, around sixty RPM. That's the hmm. that's where that's the you know minimum cost. So let's define efficiency for a second, just so that listeners are on the same page with us. Yeah. Okay. So, so the ratio of uh, mechanical uh, energy to or power to metabolic uh, power, mm-hmm. uh, and again, that's that's minimized at a pretty low cadence. Um, if you so, there's a couple of examples, but you know, what Andy Coggin likes to say, the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, so, so, I really like that. <laughs> yep. I, I, maybe I should get a bumper sticker like that. Um, it would be good. It would. It, it's very like it's very on the nose for the times we live in. I think. Right. I think yes, it, it applies yes. to more than just cycling received wisdom. So most most um, if you look, if you look at the hour record over the last hundred years, uh, when when I did this, and it may have changed since then, but. The the hour record was always set at between ninety eight and one hundred two RPM, mm-hmm. except uh, for um, uh, oh gosh uh, the um, the the Scotsman with the strange position. Oh, Graham Obrey. Obrey, thank you. Uh, and he he was at about eighty RPM, so he he actually may have been optimized. I don't know. Uh, so interestingly, along that point is a Canadian. Lionel Sanders just set, set the Canadian hour record, and he went with a very non-traditional cadence where he had to get custom chain rings and everything built, uh, and he was at 88 RPM, which was high for him, but very low yeah. for a track cyclist. Yeah. So it, it may be more efficient, uh, but people don't like it, and that that probably speaks to, you know, that the fatigue or fatigue resistance, mm-hmm. you know, is multifactorial. Uh if you if you pedal slowly, uh, that requires more force, and more force may require uh, greater recruitment of of uh, you know fast switch motor units, yep, uh, which are more fatigable. Um, and so it, you know efficiency is one component, uh, but it may not be the the end all. And and I think I, I mentioned in our our email exchange, uh, I, I really should have researched this, but I, I, as I remember. Uh, in about 1986, the um, the East German Team Time Trial Squad, which was you know world champion over and over, mm-hmm. they they went with this. They tried to uh, they had huge chain rings that allowed them to pedal about 60 RPM, uh, and they led at every time check. And then in the last fourth of the race, they just completely detonated. <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, maybe they didn't train at that cadence long enough. I, I don't know, but they never tried it again. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so, so world hour record versus Obrey's world hour record versus the East Germans versus what feels good. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't know. And I'm not sure anyone does. I, I have seen, there was a, there was an MSSE paper by a Japanese group years and years ago. I hadn't thought of that in a long time. But but they actually did uh, EMG along with um, with metabolic stress and hmm. and they they found if I remember right uh, they the the perceived exertion was lowest 
with the the lowest EMG, which was uh, uh, their self-selected. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense because yeah, perceived exertion is such a is such a fascinating topic. I think we're I'm getting off topic here, but uh, it's it's it drives our you know it drives so much of our training and racing, and it's so poorly understood. But it's it's really interesting to see that that it correlates to or this research found it correlated to EMG data. So you can tell it's a good discussion when both of us go down our own personal rabbit holes. And <laughs> <laughs> but then we have to like pull ourselves back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Jim, when you were on uh, John Thornham's excellent Flow Cycling podcast, um, one of the topics of discussion that you two had that, that I would like to revisit is your views on um, the mecha- the mechanics of pedaling and specifically kind of the, again, the received wisdom of, of interventions to make your pedaling mechanics quote unquote better. Um, and <laughs> this is where you may not make too many friends in the cycling coaches in the world. Um, but, uh, I want, I want to hear your thoughts on this because I think I personally happen to agree. So you're definitely not, uh, not going to upset me at all in this case. Uh, but I want to hear your thoughts on, uh, on the efficacy of pedaling technique training. Yeah. So again, you know, I am a cyclist. There was a time when I believed it was really important to scrape the mud off the bottom of your shoe yep. at, at the bottom <laughs> of the pedal stroke. Um, but what you, if you dig into the literature, what you find is is and, and by the by the way, uh, in, in my in my talk on this topic, I actually have a slide where I did a Google search on pedaling technique in quotes. Okay. Thousands and thousands of hits. It's phenomenal. Uh, but then you dig out the research and there's only a few papers. Uh, and uh, so one of them is, is Tom Korff's. Uh, I'm one of the authors. Uh, and, you know, in that paper, Tom instructed this, this subjects to either pedal normally or to emphasize pushing or to emphasize pulling up or to uh, pedal circles, which, which involved pushing over the top and pulling through the bottom. Okay. And, uh, he metal, measured pedal forces, and he measured um, uh, oxygen uptake. And the so, first of all, the subjects could, in fact, change how they pedaled, right? Mm-hmm. They, they did change their pedal forces. Um, and what was – so, so, so one of the, the calculations that you make from that, from the pedal forces, is uh, what's called pedal force effectiveness, and, and that's a ratio of the total force you produce to how much of that force is directed perpendicular to the crank so that it produces torque. Mm-hmm. And so when they pedaled circles, they, beca- they had much higher pedal force effectiveness. Hmm. Uh, and when they pulled up, they had much f- higher pedal force effectiveness. Uh, their normal pedaling and their emphasize the push was almost identical, and it was low pedal force effectiveness. Okay. Um, and so, you know, wow, okay, here we go. <laughs> pedaling technique is important but when you look at the the uh, oxygen uptake uh the the um self-selected was the most efficient and when they emphasized pulling up uh power went down significantly hmm. uh and and circles and pulling up power went down significantly or i'm sorry efficiency went down significantly oxygen uptake went up significantly i think that speaks to how good the brain is at optimization or at least the body uh, as a system and you're designed you've, you've evolved by natural selection to be as efficient as possible and not waste excess energy and that's why your body will adapt to training uh, because it's either 
bringing on muscle that it thinks it needs or it's getting rid of muscle that it thinks it needs. Yeah, that, that's right. There's a, there's a book that I tried to read and I only made it about 100 pages. It's called The Neurobiology of Reaching and, and Pointing. Uh, and it, it starts with, you know, primitive swimming critters okay. and how, how they evolved their, their muscle coordination. And basically those patterns persist in us today. Huh. Uh, and so we're, we're, yeah, like, like you say, our body knows, you know, you, you watch a kid, you, you, you're, you're with your, your daughter and you get her on her training wheel bike and you, you push her off and boy, there she goes. She's pedaling. Yeah. She it's does remarkable. work on pedaling technique. And, and, you know, those bikes are pretty low geared. She's, she's pedaling pretty quickly. My daughters yeah. were, she doesn't need any practice They're, she's <laughs> using spinal cord level motor programs that know how to pedal. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my six-year-old, like he's, he's starting to spin out, but he spins out at a high cadence. Like I'm, I'm watching this guy and he's like, you know, he's obviously not clipped into his pedals and, and, uh, like, you know, he's I'm like, okay, you need, you need a, you need a bigger geared bike now, pal. Cause you're just, you're just running out of, uh, you're, you're spinning out. You're running out of your, your single gear. Is it 328 RPM? No, not he's not quite there. I think the he's record's still has, safe then. Yeah. <laughs> um, he has a bit of work to do. So, so, um, the, the people who argue against that, and of course, if you go on forums, it's, there, are, there are many who, who mm -hmm. argue against that, that that's crazy. And the argument is, those were acute interventions. That was you, be my you question. told them to do it, and they did it, but they didn't know how to do it properly. Mm -hmm. uh, they would have gotten more efficient if they had had time to practice. This is, the, uh, th th this is what you get with all the advocates of Frank Day's uh, power cranks. You know, he's mm -hmm. got a whole um, uh, legion of believers. Uh, and so, so and, and no matter what study comes out, it's, well, that wasn't quite enough practice. <laughs> they, they would have gotten better if they'd gone a, a year or two years. Uh, uh, so, so, okay, all right, fair enough. That's a valid argument. Maybe they would have gotten better with practice. And so... In an unbelievable confluence of events, there is, was here in Utah, a guy who is a complete uh, femoral amputee. Okay. Uh, he's a, he was a four-time Paralympic champion, and he rides the canyon that I ride every day. And I uh, eventually met him and started a conversation. And one thing and another, he came into my lab and we looked at his efficiency with an empty crank on that side, right? Just no pedal, no nothing, the way he rode. Mm -hmm. And then we put uh, a 10 kilogram counterweight on that crank, huh. uh, which is something we've done a lot in other studies. Uh, it allows you to not quite, but almost replicate normal biomechanics. Uh, the counterweight you know, plays the role of your other leg that keeps the system in balance. Right. Um, it's less weight, but that's because it travels more than the center of mass of your thigh and so forth. Anyway, I won't bore you hmm. with the details. But um, the instant that he started pedaling the counterweight, right, for the first time in his life, it was, it was actually kind of heartbreaking. He looked down at the pedal, at the, at the crank system, watched the pedal, watched the counterweight, and then he's, his head just swung up and he looked straight at me in the eye and he goes, oh, God, this is so much easier. 
And sure enough, his efficiency went up, uh, I think, 10 and a half percent. Wow. And he didn't know how to pedal with the counterweight. So you can make this argument. He did know how to pull up. He's been doing nothing but pulling up for seven years. If anybody in the world knows how to pull up, it's this guy. Yeah, especially Uh, at his level. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and look, he's not just strong for Paralympian. He's strong. He has to slow down when he passes me and he wants to talk to me, he has to slow down to ride with me. <laughs> wow. Uh, so um, uh, I think that that we, we actually wrote this. We, the, the paper just came out recently. You don't get to write things like this in scientific papers very often. But we wrote, we believe this is the final nail in the coffin on the debate of peddling technique <laughs> and it, its role in efficiency. That's awesome. Uh, and, and I truly believe that. But but of course, there will still be believers. And and like you said, this is going to alienate the coaching community because you can't, if you're a coach, you can't expect somebody to pay you $150 a month yeah. to tell them to pedal the way that they feel intuitively they ought to. Uh, you, you've got to somehow justify your your pay. But using my same argument as before, I think this results actually opens up a lot of possibilities where now the coaching can focus on something that could return results or mm-hmm. has been scientifically proven to return results and, as opposed to focusing on something that has now been shown to not provide that efficiency benefit. Yeah, I don't have a lot of kind words for, for, for those kind of coaches that, that you know stick to dogma in the face of, of new and robust evidence. And this, is, this evidence <laughs> isn't even all that new just to justify that paycheck. I don't think those are I, – I, I would like to think that those coaches are not very successful generally. Um, so continuing on, well, on a related topic, let's say, uh, to pedaling technique, uh, I want to hear your thoughts, Jim, on non-round chain ring. So, uh, you know, I cut Andrew off earlier <laughs> when he started to ask the question. I've been mentally but, taking note of questions I've got for this, but, uh, continue on. There you go. <laughs> no, I just, I think I want to hear what, uh, Jim, what your, what your thoughts are on the evidence of, for, for efficacy. And, uh, in this, in this, you know, virtual room, you have, uh, someone who has never tried one i've never tried one and andrew i know you've had some some really positive results when you've uh, when you've used yours so um you know there's there are a lot of there's a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, f- i think in both directions and for context uh, i'll say that the claims of 10 percent improvement of peak power or <laughs> the threshold power i think are way off so it's <laughs> I prefer it for feel. I don't prefer it for getting an extra 20 to 30 watts of threshold power. Uh, so so um, there, is, there is one paper, one published paper uh, that shows an improvement in one minute efforts. Okay. Uh, and there is one modeling paper that shows that, that uh, something like a 30% eccentricity ought to be beneficial. Uh, okay. you know, modeling. I, I do, I do modeling. I have modeling papers and it's important to remember that all models are wrong. Some are useful. So <laughs> you're so, the second person who have said that to us in probably like three episodes. So maybe that's the second yeah. bumper sticker we ought to make. Well, and, and, but, but on the other hand, uh, Robert Chung says, um, models sharpen the question. Huh. So I, I like that one too. But anyway, um, so, so I'm not, I, I don't have a lot of faith in that particular modeling study. Uh, on the other hand, the, 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 the researcher who did the study with the one minute bouts, uh, when he or she graduated uh, with the degree, uh, that person immediately went to work for Rotor. 
Uh, you hmm. can interpret that any way you want. Yeah. Um, anyway, on the other hand, every other study that's been done, uh, at least every other published study that I know of, has shown no difference. Um, there is absolute black now has a link to um, uh, a manuscript that, that, as far as I know, is not published yet uh, and might never be. I don't know. I can't say what will happen when it goes through the review process, uh, claiming a pretty large uh, uh, improvement in efficiency. So, so that's the background in the literature. What I can tell you from my lab is uh, this was the topic of Chi Hoi Leong's dissertation. Uh, he used, uh, we, we tested um, um, Rotor and uh, OSIM chain rings mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, compared them with round. And what we, you know, with our perspective, we knew that that metabolic cost was largely influenced by uh, pedal speed. Okay. And so, so we did, we did two conditions. Uh, we matched the pedal speed during the middle of the extension phase. So the, the, the non-round chain rings slow you down. And so, so it's reasonable to think that that ought to uh, improve efficiency. But um, anyway, w w so, so we, had, we had the same cadence in all three conditions. And then we, the, the uh, two non-round chain rings, we equated uh, pedal speed. Okay. Uh, that said, the eccentricity is pretty small on these things, uh, about 10% maybe. Hmm. And so the change that you might ever expect uh, from that change in pedal speed is actually pretty low. Uh, so on the, on the submax work and that, that paper is in review, actually in revision right now, we got positive uh, feedback in the first round. He, he showed absolutely no effect of the uh, chain ring on efficiency at all. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I like to tell this story. He sent me an email with the, the first round of the results figures and, you know, he says, oh, look, here, here are the efficiency data. And I, I looked at the figure and I emailed him back. And I said, Chi Hoi, you, you only have one data set here. Where are the, you, you only have the round. Where are the other two uh, chain rings? I don't see it on the graph. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 they're there. It's one line. Uh, all three, it, it, it's not just not, not significantly different. It's no different at all. Huh. Uh, so, so, um, uh, that that was interesting, and so so he showed no difference at all. He did show a slight change in in biomechanics, but but not any a change in efficiency at all. Fascinating. So so he did both maximal and submaximal, and and I oh, oh I should also take, give you, so Chi Hoi is a uh, very very high level rock climber. He doesn't own a bike. Okay. He he came into this study with absolutely no bias, hmm. and. We, we actually blinded the chain rings as best we could. We built a little little plywood cover so that they couldn't see it. Huh. And, and we asked them um, after the warm-up and before the actual trials, uh, we asked them which chain ring they were on. And nobody could, you know, on average, they were wrong half the time about the, <laughs> uh, the rotors. Yeah, they were they were right more often on the the OSIMs, but they were still wrong pretty often. Huh. Uh, so so we did a really I think I think there are some situations where you go to the cyclist and you say these chain rings are going to improve your power, 
Now let's test that. Yep. And so they, they put a, you know, a big placebo effect in it and we did mm-hmm. our best to eliminate that. Uh, and so, so we got no change in efficiency at all. Um, the interesting, the, I, to me, the more interesting finding was on the maximal side, no change in maximal sprinting power. Okay. And the reason there was no change is because they, they made a subtle change in their ankling action. So we did the full biomechanics huh. in this study or well, on both of them. Uh, they made a subtle change in how they ankled. And that change, so, 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 so because the, the, the chain ring is non-round, it, it makes a change in the, in the uh, instantaneous crank angular velocity. Sure. And that then, in theory, influences the angular velocity of the hip and the knee, which are where the major power producers are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in some magical way, improves your power. Um, what we found was these guys changed their ankling technique uh, so that they, they, they defended their hip and knee trajectories. Hmm. So when they sprinted, the chain ring had absolutely no effect on ank- knee or hip biomechanics and only a small change in the ankle uh, so that, that it had no effect at all on, on maximal sprinting power. So once again, your body is fully compensating for any changes you put in the system and finding the most efficient way through. Yeah, yeah. And what was interesting was that they, they, didn't, um, they didn't cancel it during the submax. They didn't change ankling technique in submax. So it did actually affect the biomechanics, hmm. uh, but, but it, it had no effect on efficiency. Um, I, I, should, I should add, um, a lot of people anecdotally believe that, that non-round chain rings improve the power. And, and in fact, they're right. They're, they're right when they say that they see higher power on their head unit. Hmm. And that's true, but it's wrong. And, and the reason that it's wrong is because your power meter, the algorithms in your, in your head unit, uh, assume constant crank angular velocity. So they measure, they measure crank torque at high frequency throughout the cycle, but then they only have one measure of crank angular velocity, and that's when it goes you know, through one cycle. And, and so, so what a, the non-round ring, which slows you down during the extension phase where you, you're producing a lot of torque, mm-hmm. speeds you up during the dead spots, um, it biases you to higher torque on average, and then assumes that you are actually at constant crank angular velocity and you're not. And so in, in Chi Hoi's paper, uh, we pres- we report, I think it's 3.6. I'd have to go look. Uh, so, so the SRM head unit, you know, carefully calibrated SRM, you know, gold standard uh, is wrong by, by I think 3.6% compared to if you do the, the proper calculation from the force pedals um, where you're measuring power at high frequency, not torque at high frequency. So, so, yeah, everybody gets this. Well, not everybody, but but people who report that they are more powerful, they you got to you got to change the way they say that. Yeah. You got to say yes, your head unit reports more power. That doesn't mean you're actually more powerful. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I guess a quick follow up on that is we're talking about um, 
starting and stopping the force, I can't remember the exact terms that you use, but uh, with your muscles basically turning on and off, um, would there be a benefit if a chain ring were optimized to allow a longer phase where you're deactivating the muscles um, so that you could, if that is the limiting factor, if you could uh, control that? Yeah, so that's that's actually Biopace from the 80s. Ah. Uh, and th- those also don't change. <laughs> <laughs> so you just can't trick the body. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's an optimization problem, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, activation, deactivation. Yeah, it, it would be lovely. I, I should tell you. So, in in terms of you know, our lab not studying cycling, uh, I got interested in this, and we we have a paper called um, pedal trajectory. And so, what we did in that one, it was single leg cycling, and we we made a bracket. Uh, that put the chain ring off center, w- huh. way, way off center. Like a, like in, a spirograph? If you um, know what those are. Kind of, yeah. Okay. So the, the inside of the chain ring was actually almost touching the bottom bracket spindle. Oh, wow. Okay. That's super eccentric. Uh, so it, it was a major offset. And so what that does is, depending on which way you flip it, it, it has very, very long, slow extension and very rapid flexion, mm-hmm. right? Or the opposite. Uh, and and we were able to show that you could improve power with this the long, slow extension. Um, and you could hurt power with the, the rapid extension. Um, and there, there is actually a system. Rotor, before they went into uh, non-round chain rings, they actually had a system that did that on both cranks. Hmm. Um, and I bought one, I, I bought one at retail, uh, and never got around to testing it, but I actually think that that might improve, uh, sprinting power. Hmm. Uh, it's still sitting in a cupboard in my lab, uh, <laughs> need, need to get around to that someday, but I, I don't think they make it anymore. So the, the one thing that may actually work has been discontinued. <laughs> Come on, Rotor, get back to it. Get back to work. <laughs> if you're listening, Mr. Rotor. <laughs> um, Jim, this has been a, a really terrific conversation. I mean, I, I've I've heard you speak to this stuff uh, a few times before, as I mentioned, but uh, definitely a few things that I've learned here, and uh, I think our audience too will find it will find it interesting. I am um, I had actually this very conversation, well, the conversation about crank lengths with a coach who I have a ton of respect for, who was not convinced about the the short crank arms and uh, i think i believe that he he listens to you know most of our most of our episodes and uh i'm keen to have this conversation with him after he he hears uh hears our conversation with you today so thank you so much for for taking the time to join us today um for people who want to learn more about your research or follow you you mentioned that you were on slow twitch what's the best way to you know uh keep track of what you're up to in a in a non-creepy way and get in touch Oh, you know, I, I really don't have a social media presence like like maybe I should. I don't do Twitter or, or Instagram. Okay. Um, I, I have a Facebook account, but it, I use it for my friends. You know? <laughs> Fair point. Uh, my actual physical friends, not not not, <laughs> not the virtual ones. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I I really don't have a, a mechanism for distributing stuff. I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe I should. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. So in the, in in lieu of that. Um, maybe you can uh, you can share some of the uh, some of the papers that we talked about today if you if you don't mind doing that if we can if we can link to them um, for for folks oh, to sure. do their own th- their own reading. 
So that that's the way we'll I do th- it. I think I sent you the the ones we've talked about. Maybe there are some you other did. ones that I yep that have come up. I, if if so, let me know and I'll send them. To you. I'll post I'll post these listeners. Yeah, there there are two that Jim sent to me. Um, yeah, this was this was excellent. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a real. I, I you you you're very conversational. I enjoyed it, and uh, thank, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Uh, and listeners, as always, if you like the show, uh, tell your friends and uh, do give us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts, and uh, check us out next week.